0: I have always wished that my Spanish was better. Living in Southern California and going to Mexico a lot for surfing, weekend trips, stuff like that, is just very handy. I took three years of it in high school, but I really didn't learn that much from the books. I basically only got really good at asking various types of people where the library is located, which turns out to be not a phrase you use that often when you're on vacation. Rosetta Stone is a much more organic and easy way to learn a new language because it really immerses you in that language. It's the most trusted language learning program available on desktop and also it has an app. Rosetta Stone is the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. Like I said, it's fast language acquisition because it really immerses you in the language. There's no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language. They also have speech recognition features like True Accent, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's also an amazing value. They offer a lifetime membership, which includes all 25 languages, which is perfect for any and all trips you might have in your future with various languages you might want to learn. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Otherworld listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime membership for fifty percent off. That's fifty percent off. Unlimited access to twenty-five language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your fifty percent off at RosettaStone.com/otherworld today. This episode is brought to you by Harry's. Harry sent me a razor starter kit recently to try, and I put it to use very quickly because I keep myself clean-shaven. In fact, I pretty much shave every single day because I have lots of facial hair. It grows back very quickly, and it's also really thick and it hurts a lot when I shave normally with a bad razor, at least. So I've been using Harry's razors for like a week now. They're very nice. It's a five blade razor. And I have to say, it really does effortlessly shave through my normally very annoying facial hair. It doesn't hurt one bit, no tugging, anything like that. And it stayed sharp the entire time as well. I'm very impressed so far. It also has kind of a good weight to it. It's like heavier than normal. I don't know. It's like, it's just got a good weight to it. I really like that. I didn't know I liked it before, but now I know I like it. I also really liked the shaving cream just because it smells really good. Harry's saw customers getting ripped off by questionable shaving products and decided to do something better. They found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of other big brands. Harry's has a customizable delivery option for scheduled refills as low as $2, half of what you pay from other big brands. Don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash otherworld. That's harrys.com slash otherworld for a $3 trial set. Welcome to Otherworld. I'm your host, Jack Wagner. This episode is part one of a two-part story that we've been working on very hard in order to release it on this week, the week of Valentine's Day. Not only because... This is a love story of sorts. Most of the important events in these episodes take place and revolve around the month of February. I have so much to say about this story. I don't even know where to start. When I first saw this email, I was a bit skeptical. It was very long, and the story was written in a rather unusual way. It was in third person, almost like a book. In fact, the entire thing sounded like the plot of a romance novel the kind you might see at the supermarket with a cheesy illustration on the cover. I really almost ignored this one, but I'm so glad that I didn't. The story involved high school sweethearts in the 1980s, a love triangle between a cheerleader, football player, and an older doctor, a lawsuit, death, the Golden Gate Bridge, and of course, something paranormal that I can't get into without spoiling the story. You see what I mean? It sounds like the plot of a soap opera so i had my reservations but the story was incredible and the woman who sent it in included her phone number so i told nikki who works on the show to just give this person a call vibe them out ask about the story find out what her deal is you know i don't mean to sound judgmental but part of what we do on this show is fact check and verify the things you hear on these episodes and it seemed like it would be pretty hard for this one nikki was on the phone longer than I expected, but she came back and said that not only is this woman great, she believes her, and apparently she has documents to back it all up. Also, the woman whose name turned out to be Renee was as hesitant of the show as I was of her because she's a fairly successful businesswoman, and she felt a bit wary about telling this story to the public. So, we told Renee, send us all these documents, which she did. I received a box in the mail filled with hundreds of love letters and diary entries from 1984 to 2005, police reports, legal documents, and newspaper clippings. She even gave us phone numbers of other people involved in the story that we were able to call and confirm some of the details. And then we eventually sat down to interview her and she told us the full story, which took about six hours. The story that you're about to hear sounds straight out of a Nicholas Sparks or Danielle Steele novel, which is part of the reason why we're releasing it on Valentine's Day. But it's also the reason that I love it so much. It's a story so big and out there that I probably would have never believed it if I didn't have this mountain of diary entries, love letters, and documents to back it all up sitting right next to me. Before we begin, I want to say that these episodes discuss suicide, which may be difficult for certain listeners. This is a two-part series, this is episode 70, the title is Eagle Eye, Part 1, and you're listening to Otherworld. Hello? Is this Bobby? Yes, it is. At, at its core, the science, you can't argue with. It so I'm late. worried about all of a sudden it is Up in the sky. It's almost frustrating that it's happening. I'm, yes, I'm going to die. like, it's okay, limbs okay. were just like wrong.
1: Everybody moves back into the light, even if it takes them a minute. My name is Renee Omachayev, and I am uh, a native to the Bay Area in California. I currently live in Northern California and on the island of Kauai, Hawaii. I am a licensed investment advisor, and I've been in practice since 1998, so a long time. I started my career on Wall Street with the major banks. Pretty green, really naive, not really knowing a lot. I am first generation American. My mother and father have been together since they were 12 years old. They were born into World War II Nazi Germany. My father's dad was a trolley car driver in the city of Frankfurt. And um, during the war, he was deeply entrenched in the resistance movement. He was a gun runner uh, using the trolley cars in moving weaponry for a couple of assassination attempts on Hitler's life when he was scheduled to come to Frankfurt. But Frankfurt was pretty anti-Nazi, and so those speeches never occurred, and it didn't happen. After the war, they lived in the American-occupied zone in Frankfurt. And they had a lot of experiences with American GIs. And so my dad was really fascinated with America and cowboys. And I guess he always had this lifelong dream that they would come to America. And it's really odd because as they grew up and became adults in Germany, they had a really good life. And... um, there wasn't really a reason for them to come to America. Germany was rebuilding, they had career opportunities to take over a business and be very successful. And at age 22, they decided to sell everything and go to San Francisco. They didn't even speak English. And so they did, they landed in the Bay Area and my mom cleaned floors, my dad worked three jobs as he was a journeyman electrician and he eventually got a job with Hewlett Packard. So my parents worked really, really hard to kind of build this life in America. And I was born in 1969, a few years after they came. When I was about, I think 10 years old, we moved to Newark, California. My dad was transferred with Hewlett Packard. And at that point, I had spent all my years in, you know, the same school with all the same friends. And I was in my junior year of high school, and we were now leaving the Bay Area. I was really upset with my parents. Um, They felt it was going to be a better life to move to the northern Bay Area, Santa Rosa, California. I didn't think so, and so I was really rebelling. Like, my mom and dad were very strict. We had to clean house every Saturday. We had family responsibilities. Everybody had a role to play, and there was no getting out of it. My mom was really, really tough around that, and it was it was really strict. We had to be home after school. We had a certain amount of—we were latchkey kids. We had a certain amount of time to have a snack do our homework, set the table for dinner, you know, like, there was a list, and if there was hell to pay, if you did. you were on restriction, things were taken away. I mean, I had to, I wanted to be a cheerleader, I had to babysit the entire summer to pay for half of cheerleading camp. You know, that was, none of my friends had those rules. So it was, I always felt like, you know, there was just so many expectations, and so we had a lot of conflict, and in ninth grade, I had basically my first sexual encounter. And, you know, my mother was actually pretty open with us. Um, You know, my parents being European, sexuality is sort of a, a, it's not taboo. And it was something we talked about. And it was, she gave me information on birth control. She told me, you know, I knew about sex. And she basically told me that it was something that I needed to decide for myself when I was ready, which I did. I I got on the pill and I made a decision that I was going to have an intimate relationship with another boy at my school, and um, he was very popular. He was well liked. You know, he was very cute. The girls were all over him. He was. And, uh, you know, I made that decision. And, of course, I found out that I wasn't the only girlfriend. He told other people. And so the next thing I knew, you know, the fact that I lost my virginity was known in school. Um, I was also painfully shy as a child. I had very low self-esteem, very little confidence. I was really skinny, small, and withdrawn. And so... You know, all these things culminated. Plus, I was having so many issues at home with my parents. Being German, we were hit. That was the culture. So, you know, looking back today, my parents obviously aren't that way anymore, but I was I was hit a lot, and it was hard for me because I was very sensitive. All of these things just made me feel like I wanted... I just needed to get out. I just couldn't see, I couldn't find myself in all of that. Um, it was really dark. And I, um, I tried to commit suicide. My dad had had back surgery and I was, there was just so much conflict. I didn't know, I didn't have an outlet to get help. And so one night I, um, I overdosed on the pills you know, I think they were Percocet. I don't even remember how many there were. I just remember when I went back upstairs, I went into their bathroom and I grabbed the pills and I went into my room and I just, I just took them. And um, I remember having visions of like thinking about having them find me dead and how sorry they would all be. And, and, you know, and then all of a sudden I realized, oh my God, I'm not going to come back. Like, Once they're all sorry, I won't be able to turn the table around. And I started really feeling the effects of the drugs. I mean, I was I was starting to you know come in and out of consciousness, and it scared me. And I remember calling a friend of mine, and he told me to call 911. I don't remember much after that, but they did show up. I ended up in the hospital, my stomach pumped. We ended up in a crisis situation with mental health professionals and I was under a 5150 hold. And um, at that point, the decision was kind of presented to us that I could enter an adolescent treat- mental health treatment facility to deal with you know, all of the emotional issues. And what I really needed was a break from my parents. And so I entered this intensive counseling program for a month and then during that process, my entire family—my mom, dad, and younger sister—were involved in therapy sessions, and um, it really changed our, the the trajectory of our family and my life because we learned the sets and tools that we had to deal with the physical abuse and violence, which a lot of it was very cultural because that was just sort of it's very was very common in the German culture, particularly during the period that my parents grew up. And so learning how to communicate around all of that and, um, you know, just have healthy family dynamics. And it took time, but it really did happen um, because we all wanted it to. And so that all occurred during ninth grade. And then I entered high school in 10th grade. I think it was the first week of school, I had a doctor's appointment, I was late to first period, and so I waited in the quad between classes and sat outside, and there were a few seniors out there that had a free first period, and one of the guys, his name was Johnny, um, he came up to me, and he just started talking to me, and I didn't really know a lot of people, um, you know, other than a few friends from my class. And he was really nice and he made me feel really welcome. And I guess while we were talking, one of his um, friends who was also a senior, his name was Danny, he saw us out the window. And after class, he asked Johnny, you know, hey, who is that girl? Can you introduce me? So, of course, you know, notes were passed. And, you know, this is 1984. So we meet at the lockers and the introduction is made. And, you know, Danny is just really, really cute. And he was very popular. He was very well liked. Um, He had an energy about him, you know, sort of that football player, he would walk in and he'd have his football jacket on and he'd smile, sort of this beautiful smile, very short, clean cut. Um, He was meticulously neat. I don't think I've ever met anybody, a boy, that would bleach his underwear and his socks. But everything that he owned that was white was perfectly bleached. He He would even iron his stuff. Meticulous house, everything about him, fingernails, you know, just so clean cut and adorable. And everybody liked him. He was just that all-American football, you know, high school popular boy. And I was the complete opposite. Shy, insecure. We just instantly connected immediately. And we were together from that minute forward. We did all the dances. I was learning to drive. I was 15 at the time. So that was in the fall of 84. My birthday is actually in two days, so um, February 2nd. And uh, at that time, I was turning 16. His birthday is February 9th, he was turning 18. So he had a kind of a hot rod Chevelle. He would like, let me drive it to school. You know, we, we would, I would drive it, you know, secretly. We were practicing, it was really fun. We'd go to the movies, all, these, all the things that you do in high school. What I found out early on is that he was living in the garage of one of his classmates. Danny had uh, two parents who were divorced and they had been since he was pretty young. His mom was pretty self-made. She was, you know, working hard to support the kids, and the father was very successful. He had a business in Sacramento. And um, the mom, I guess, decided to leave Newark, and Dan didn't want to miss out on his senior year, so he opted to live in his friend's garage, and it it was awful. So I told my neighbor across the street, I lived in a neighborhood that was super, super close, and she really liked Dan, she and her husband. So they asked him to move in with him in their spare bedroom, which he did within a few months. So we had basically lived across the street each other for that entire year that we were together. And we were so connected. He would come over in the morning, and when I would get ready, I would sit in the sink for school. You know, I'd sit in the sink in my bathroom and put all my makeup on, and he'd sit on the toilet and he'd drink a cup of tea, and we'd talk, and then we'd go, you know, like a little married couple, have our little routine, go to school, come come back. You know, everything was great. You know, and at this point, I uh, I, I should mention that, you know, I was coming off of all of this intense stuff with, you know, the mental health and and the suicide. And my family was really starting to heal. And my parents were a little leery about me getting involved with the boy, but, you know, they liked him. And so he spent a lot of time with my parents and my family. And, you know, they felt okay about us being together. And um, I still had a lot of conflict with my mom and it was, Danny would always, take kind of my mom's side when we would fight. And he would always say, no, 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 just no, 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 just listen, just listen. Like I would get so wound up and he would just calm me down and help me get perspective and help me work through and, you know, just kind of deal with everything. And um, and he would always say, no, 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 just listen, just listen. And I would just calm down. And so I really felt like, you know, he was an instrumental part of my life at that point of letting me build trust and kind of reconnecting I've always been a really um, empathetic person and overly sensitive he he picked up on that really quickly when we were together and he and we were really psychically linked I don't even know how to explain it it was it was just something that was really unusual and we really understood each other on a very I don't know, psychic level. And I remember him early on telling me, he would say, you're a lot like my mom and my sister. Um, and by that, he meant sort of prescient. He, you know, just knowing things. And I always felt really safe with him in that regard. We had intimacy. It was a, it was um, really life-changing for me. And I was deeply in love with him. And we were talking about, you know, getting married and having a family and being together. And, you know, my parents were kind of my role model for that. So it didn't seem so odd that that could be what we would do. And that was sort of what we were planning. And then all of that sort of stopped because my mom and dad um, had an opportunity for my father with Hewlett Packard to leave Palo Alto and move to the Northern Bay Area to Santa Rosa, Bonner Park, and transferred to a facility up there. And it was a job promotion and it would have meant, you know, a much nicer house for them and just sort of a step up in life. And so they made the decision that we were gonna move to Santa Rosa the summer before my junior year. That was um, (laughs) not in my plans to say the least. I was appalled. When my parents told me the news that we were moving, I, I was pretty dumbfounded. I just didn't see it coming, to be honest with you. I just expected that we were going to live in the East Bay and New York my whole life and, you know, that my life was sort of mapped out. And when they said we were going to Santa Rosa, I, I didn't even know where that was. And all I could think of was I was going to be graduating with my friends and then more importantly, Dan. I mean, he was graduating from high school and at that point he was working for cattlemans. And so in my mind, I knew there was a cattleman's in Santa Rosa. You know, I thought, okay, well, this will, this is great. So I was really trying to talk him into moving to Santa Rosa, going to the junior college up there, playing football, working at Cattlemans and... You know, life would go on, and I don't really know why he chose not to do that other than I knew that his father was an extremely influential person in his life, and ultimately, he won out. You know, this was, this all happened probably in May. So at this point, senior prom is about to happen. I'm ready for prom. We are in, you know, a completely tumultuous point with all of this. And Danny starts getting kind of mean because he wants to break up with me, but I'm not really letting go. And so we agree to go to prom together. And that night was disastrous. Um, I was so emotionally distraught with knowing that the relationship was about to end. And um, I remember we got in a big fight. We broke up that night. I went back home. He ended up taking some other girl, one of my other friends, to the after party. And it was was brutal. Graduation happened. I don't even think he went to graduation. And I I just kind of let it go and took my stuff and we moved to Santa Rosa. I had just moved to Santa Rosa, and I was in my new bedroom. And I, you know, my mom wasn't helping. Nobody was helping, you know, to, to get us back together. In fact, everybody was really kind of pushing to keep us apart. So in my utter despair, I hysterically was crying, sat on my floor in my bedroom, and poured my heart and soul out into a letter to Dan's mom. And I remember, just writing on its lined paper. Here it is. This is a photocopy. Um, Just writing, 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 and all this emotion coming out of me and feeling like I needed to somehow conjure up a way to make all this happen, and it wasn't working out. And then Everything was just so emotional for me. I started feeling, um, you know, I was crying and I was hyperventilating and I was shaking. And I remember just sort of everything just stopping. And I just kept saying to myself, when are we going to be together? When are we going to be together? When?" Are... And I very distinctly heard this, like, very calm voice. I remember it was, like, really calming. And, I, and my whole body just, so, I just felt like tingly. That's the only way I can describe it. Um, Like a heightened, you know, sort of like this really intense vibration. And I remember sort of having this, like, if a movie's running in the background, and I saw very clearly myself as it, I guess it was myself as an adult in a business suit. And I saw all these women behind me, you know, sort of, it was almost like in a V and, you know, spreading out behind me. I could see there were a lot of them and almost like mirrors, you know, where you just see it like multiplying, multiplying, multiplying. And um, all the voice said to me, and I mean, I I am hysterically crying. It says, you will be together again when you're on TV and helping other women. And I remember thinking, like, it was just so weird because I didn't have, I've never had growing up any idea of what I was going to be. I certainly didn't want to be a financial advisor. I wouldn't want anything to do with finance (laughs) at all. Um, like, I just had no sense of identity or where my future was going. And so, I don't think at that moment that I realized that that was my future because it seemed so disconnected with anything that was in my reality. But it, I knew that, like, that, okay, that's it. Now, I didn't know in what context or what way, but I was certain that we were going to be together when that happened at some point in the future. And I accepted it. I mailed a letter, and I I honestly let it go.
0: That vision, was this like one of your ambitions as a teenager? Like, were you the type of kid who dreamed of being in the limelight and, like, being famous for something, like being on the news? Was that a common thing you thought about, or was it random?
1: No, no. I mean, you know, I was— I was really shy and withdrawn, um, you know, a wallflower, honestly. And I never, ever dreamed of, you know, being on TV or doing anything remotely public. And I still, um, you know, it's not something I even really pursue.
0: Would you, um, I know it's quite long, but before you move on, would you be willing to read the letter that you wrote the mom? And like, even if it's just like the first page. It's,
1: it's so stupid. It really is. It's like reading a 16-year-old girl's diary. Um, it's just so. So the date is June 30th, 1985. Dear Kathy, I really don't know how to start this letter off. And I don't want to sound rude or disrespectful because I respect you very much. And you were there for me to talk to when things were rough. It really upsets me to think that you think Danny's problems are because of me, either directly or indirectly. I do admit that I did some stupid things, and towards the end, I hung on him too tight. But the reason I did these things was because of him. In the beginning, when Dan started to open up to me about his past, we talked for hours, and I would hold him, and he'd open up about his father and you. There'd be times where he'd break down and cry and be angry and tell me that I was lucky to have my family. And I'd hold him and I would tell him that I was there for him and that it wasn't all that bad. And then I would point out the good things in his life and he'd feel better. When he'd cried, I'd always feel so helpless because he always seemed so strong. During those times, he'd hold me so tight and beg me never to leave him. I wasn't used to this sort of love. I liked every bit of it since it made me feel needed and I liked being needed. I guess that's why I did what he told me to do, like not go out on weekends with my friends and do his laundry, clean his room, and make him meals. I know I had the choice to say no, but I felt I had to for him because he had to go to school and work to support himself. I felt that things like that would help make him feel secure. I really gave up a lot, but I wanted to because I enjoyed being there and doing things for him. I guess towards the end, he decided that he needed to be with his friends part of the time and with me and the other time. I was really hurt because I felt like I'd been cheated. I gave up my friends and social life for him and I was there for him. And by this time, I was really used to having all of him. So I became jealous and selfish. I wanted to keep him to myself because I didn't have anyone else. I didn't understand that it was important to him to be with his friends since it was, his close to gra- it was close to graduation. But before this time, he found out that I was moving, and I knew that hurt him a lot. He felt that he was losing me, and he didn't want to be hurt again. So he started to do little things to me that were mean. He would say or do things that would hurt me a lot, and every time he did, I'd run and hang on him and I'd let him put guilt trips on me, and then I'd want to be around him more because I felt very insecure. When things would go bad between us, he'd always say to me, well, it doesn't matter. You're leaving me anyway. That would make me feel terrible because it wasn't my choice to move. Then shortly after we were apart, he was seeing a girl at school. Every time I was around, he'd kiss her and hold her and look me in the eye and watch my expressions. <laughs> I was so hurt. Then we started talking and he'd tell me he still loves me very much. And the reason he can't get back together with me is because I'm leaving. And he can't stand to see me once a week because he needs me every day. And he's afraid that I'll find someone up here and then dump him. Kathy, I'm sure you know that Dan and I were sexually active. Oh, God. <laughs> Um, well, during you're really, the time, you're really
0: telling her everything, seriously, <laughs> really didn't hold back. God,
1: this is hysterical. Um, well, during the time we were apart, Dan would always tell me he loved me, and we remained sexually active, but he also had Misty on the side. Then did, one day, did I Kathy went over, I
0: didn't need to
1: know. Oh, my god, this is so funny. Okay. Like, getting, seeing your 16-year-old self is a little weird. Um, Then one day I went over to Patty's. Patty was the neighbor where he lived, my neighbor where he lived, um, to return something. And I knew that he was alone, so I made a fake hickey on my neck with blush and went over. I wanted to make him jealous. I know it sounds childish, but I did it anyway. When he saw my hickey, he was shocked calmly, oh my God, calmly, he asked me about it and I told him that I went out and he invited me in and he wanted me to stay so we could talk. He lay, we laid down on the couch and we sat next to each other and we started to cry a little and he told me things that um, he was miserable without me and that he missed me. And that he used Misty to make me jealous because I was leaving him. And then he said, Renee, I've got to get you back before I lose you forever. And that's where the the letter ends. I don't know if I'm missing a page because I don't have a signature on it, but that's where everything ends. Basically, everybody moving away. And I was not really happy about any of it. (laughs)
0: All right, we have to go to a quick break, but we'll be right back. Springtime is here. I've recently had all of my windows open, letting in the breeze, the smell of fresh flowers blooming all over my neighborhood. This is what a house should smell like. It should not smell like your cat's litter box. Thankfully, pretty litter makes that very easy. Nothing beats Pretty Litter's ability to instantly trap odor. It's ultra-absorbent, lightweight, low dust, and one six-pound bag works for up to a month. It also gives me peace of mind knowing Pretty Litter's crystals change color to indicate early signs of potential illness in my cat, like urinary tract infections, kidney issues, and more. This is especially useful now that my cat is hanging out constantly by our screen door, getting visitations from coyotes, raccoons, squirrels, other cats, who knows what else. So it's very helpful knowing that if he picks up anything weird from them, I'll notice right away in his litter. When I first got my cat Merlin, I tried using the cheap cat litter that comes in those huge giant bags from the pet store. That stuff is awful. Some of it smells worse than the smells it's supposed to be covering up. It does not have to be like that. There's a better way to live. There's no reason for your house to smell like your cat's litter box. If your house smells like a cat's litter box, that's on you, that's not on your cat. Pretty Litter is amazing, you should give it a try. Go to prettylitter.com otherworld to save 20% on your first order and get a free cat toy. That's prettylitter.com otherworld to save 20% on your first order and get a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. Folks, springtime is here, and it might be time to clean out the closet and finally update your wardrobe. Quince has you covered with timeless pieces that never got a style. You'll have them in your closet forever. Quince has all the essentials for men and women, and everything is made from high-quality materials, which is very important to me. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes savings on to us. And, like I mentioned— Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I recently went on a little shopping spree myself. I got a chore jacket, a Mongolian cashmere cardigan, and a quilted jacket. Basically stuff that I could just throw on top of the normal old t-shirts that I wear every day to make myself look a lot more presentable and fashionable when I need to. I also got some new sheets for our bed. They have so many to choose from. So indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash otherworld for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's quince, Q-U-I-N-C-E dot slash otherworld to get free shipping and 365-day returns. quince.com slash otherworld. I used to be really bad at keeping track of my finances. A very stupid part of me believed that if I just don't look at my bank accounts and my credit card statements, the money will all still be there, even if I spent it on stupid stuff that month. Well, that's not how it works. I learned the hard way. It's quite the opposite. Usually, when I finally did look, I'd notice that there was some subscription I'd been paying for that I forgot to cancel or I got overcharged for something and it's too late to fix. But now I use Rocket Money to keep track of all of that for me so I don't have to worry. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money finds all of your bills and subscriptions for you, lays them out, and gives you the option to cancel them automatically or it can negotiate a lower price for you. I recently tested this out on my internet bill and they were able to negotiate a lower price for me. I saved like $300 doing this. If you're like me and you get scared checking your accounts, Rocket Money might be your savior. It's nice having everything in one place and under control. I promise you're going to be very happy once you finally do it. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com otherworld. That's rocketmoney.com otherworld.
2: Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes.
1: June of 1985, I'm now in my new town of Santa Rosa, California, and um, my family, we sort of live on the outskirts of town, and um, I don't have a driver's license yet. I'm, you know, no friends. We spend that whole summer isolated by ourselves, kind of up in our big house. You know, it was just, it was just weird. I was really unhappy. Um, And I was I was a really good student at that point. I was an honors everything. I never had a boyfriend, and I was just kind of trying to, you know, make friends. And I did okay. I was kind of really struggling still. I really missed Dan, I missed my school, and then I got really upset that I wasn't gonna be graduating with my friends. And so I knew I had extra credits and I decided in my brilliance that I was gonna start cutting all these classes, eroding extra credits that I had to graduate early. And I was short a credit two weeks before graduation. And instead of dealing with it, I dropped out of high school. Um, I was an adult at that point, I was 18. I signed myself out of high school and didn't tell anybody. And so obviously my parents found out It was a big drama. I almost got kicked out of my house. My mom, you know, said I had to go to work and pay rent, which I did. And I had always been working since high school at a um, clothing store in the mall. So I just did that job full time. I got promoted. I suddenly kind of felt like, you know, I was finding my own And, and I was going to school. I was at the junior college. My mom agreed to support me. I moved back home. At this point, I'm back in school and I'm getting ready to um, transfer to the University of California of Davis. Um, and I'm working part time for this doctor. And I meet one of his colleagues, and he's this really kind of elegant older man. He was about 44 years old, always very elegant, dressed in these sweaters, um, and and engaging with me and asking me questions and. Um, just really nice and I, I just really liked him. I connected with him but I wasn't super attracted to him or there was no you know, I didn't you know, I, I, I he was just this nice person and I really liked him. He would leave flowers and do all kinds of nice little things, leave chocolates on my desk and then I was really struggling with math homework and you know I'd try and do homework in between work and he would notice and he would ask me if I needed help and you know, it was just, it was very sweet. And he, he's from Europe. Um, so he was born in the former Yugoslavia, which is today Serbia. They came to America under a political asylum. You know, so his upbringing and his background, despite having a 22-year age difference, was so European in our experiences or and our family dynamics. We just, just the age difference was never an issue. And we really... Clicked. It was so interesting, and he was so not like you know people that I knew. I didn't really know educated people, and I didn't. He was so worldly, and so I really liked him. and And our our relationship really took time to develop. Um, we. You know, I met him in October. We spent, you know, kind of connected really during the holidays. And then in April of that next year in 1992, he asked me to go on vacation with him to Kauai, Hawaii, which we did. And when we got back, I moved in with him. And about probably a month later, my mom calls me and she tells me that Dan called her house looking for me and wanted to talk to me and she was reluctant to give him my new phone number since I had just moved in with, um, you know, the the doctor. And so she gives him the phone number and he calls the house. And, you know, at that point, um, I took the call. He, he told me that he regretted, you know, leaving and not being with me and that, you know, he wanted he wanted me back and, you know, kind of all the things that you would you dream of hearing. And so I, you know, I was like, yes, 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 yes. The doctor knew that he was going to be calling and um, he was okay with it because he, in his mind, he knew from all of our conversations how kind of hung up I was on this person. And so all of a sudden he shows up, you know, this is now four or five years later, out of the blue, looking for me. And, um, you know, he he was, he was really diplomatic. And he, you know, he knew how I felt. And it was, and it hadn't changed. I mean, the minute I heard Dan's voice, nothing had changed in the way that I felt. And as much as I like this, this man that I was now living with, um, you know, I didn't really have visions of a future. It was, it was nice that I was living with him. And, you know, it just, it was just sort of, I was just falling into it. And uh, he said to me, you know, I think you need to decide what you want to do if you want to be with him or not. I think you really need to make this decision um, so that you're clear and that you don't have any regrets. And I thought that was so adult of him, so mature, and so he suggested that we go away for the weekend um, and figure out what we wanted to do, and we did. And so we made arrangements to, um, for me to drive to Sacramento to pick him up, and then we were going to drive on to Tahoe and spend a night um, there, and we did. I remember, you know, pretty much everything from that point on. Pretty clearly, I I picked him up, and I remember his dad was really cold towards me because you know I was that really emotional teenage girl, and I remember he you know he remembered me from high school, and he kind of made sort of this comment like, oh yeah, I remember you were that girl that just wouldn't let go, and um, we drove off. We went to Tahoe. We got to Tahoe, and I remember we walked around. We checked in to the hotel. And he wanted to go to the casino. And I kind of thought that was weird. Um, You know, I'm not into casinos and gambling. I'm a super nature girl. And so, and I I didn't, I never knew that part of him. And so, you know, we hung out in the casino. I didn't like that. And I know, I remember we went out to eat and we just talked a lot. And, you know, he kind of told me his story that his life sort of kind of went, you know, in this kind of different direction. He had moved to Nevada he um, ended up marrying someone, um, and I believe her family was in the laundry business, and they serviced um, a lot of casinos in in the Nevada area. And through that connection, he got introduced to the world of gambling, and um, you know, kind of got into it pretty hardcore. And there was an incident that happened between he and his wife that involved. Some jealous rage. I don't, you know, he didn't go into a lot of detail. Um, but he ended up getting in a fight with some guy. And, you know, the family was really well known in that part of Nevada. And so, you know, it basically ended up with them, their relationship ending and him leaving Nevada and coming back to Sacramento. And that is when he contacted me because his life was an upheaval. He told me that he had a daughter and that they were divorced now, and that he was back working for his dad, and, you know, he was kind of trying to figure it out, and so, you know, kind of that whole day together, and being at the room, and I remember that night, um, I just, there was something really weird about him, like, there was this, like, this energy about him that was, like, kind of shaken, you know, He, he, like, nervous, and, I just, I didn't, he just seemed so, it wasn't him, you know, he seemed so unsettled and I couldn't connect with him. And I didn't, I didn't want to be intimate with him because at this point I was like, you know, I was like, what am I going to do? You know, I loved, I was really starting to have feelings for, you know, this other guy, even though I only knew him like, you know, six months or so, but I was making these major life move forward, moving steps with him. And so I was really, really conflicted. And I I made the decision not to be intimate with him and he was respectful of that. So we, you know, he, he kept leaving. Like in the middle of the night, I'd wake up and he'd be gone. He was down in the casino. And it really, it troubled me that I didn't understand what was happening or what was going on. And I didn't question it, but it, it bothered me. You know, when I, when I, saw Dan, you know, being kind of not being this happy-go-lucky person anymore, you know, I could tell there were things troubling him when we were in Tahoe, but he wasn't really talking to them about me. I knew that he was really troubled by his troubles with his ex-wife and his family, but he didn't really get into a lot of details, Um, you know, and he just, he just kind of made me aware that he wasn't making good decisions. And you know, in my mind, it was okay because I loved him, and it I was going to set him straight i was my love was going to save him and so we went back to Santa Rosa. I dropped him off in in Sacramento after the weekend, and I went home and i, I don 't really remember much. I know that I saw him two more times in secret I didn 't make any decisions after that, and then We saw each other two more times, and I met him in Sacramento, and we met in someone's apartment. I don't know whose it was. No one was there. He seemed to be living there, but I couldn't quite tell. At that point, we became intimate, and it changed everything for me. Like, I just fell madly in love with him. Um, You know, we talked more, and so I started kind of coming up with this plan. I knew that I was about to transfer to the University of California, Davis, at that point, And would be living in Davis, which is really close to Sacramento. And so I was going to do that and we could be together. You know, at this point, he was showing me photographs like pictures of his daughter. I remember he showed me a photograph of her and her of him, and she was wearing these glasses, and then he had this other photo by his bed, which was of himself, and he was wearing a Hilton uniform, and he was really proud of this picture, and I thought it was so bizarre that he had a picture of himself in a Hilton uniform, and, you know, it was just like all these weird things, and so then I told him that this is what I wanted to do, and I don't know what happened, but all of a sudden he was like, no, 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 no. No, you need to be with, you need to be with the doctor. You need to be with him. I'll destroy you. And I was like, what are you talking about? You'll destroy me. And he's like, no, 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 no. You need to be with him. You need to be with him. You need to go back. He's going to give you the world. He's going to show you the world. Um, he's going to give you everything. You're too good. You're too good. And I was like, what are you talking about? I want to be with you. I love you, you know? And I was like going through the whole plan again. And he was like, no, no, no. And I just remember we were standing by the door and I was just so, like, I was speechless, you know? Like, why did you come interrupt my life? Tell me you wanted me back, all this stuff. And here I am saying yes. And you're like literally telling me no, no. And he, like, starts pushing me out the door. And I just, I remember I kind of got into a, you know, like, what are you doing? And he's like, no, you're too good. You're too good. You're too pure. I'll crush you. I'll destroy you. And he shoved me out the door and he slammed it in my face. And I was just like, I didn't know what to say. I just stood there breathless and shaking. I was so angry. I felt so foolish. And I was like, oh, my God, I have to get the hell out of here and go back and just forget about all of this. And I got in my car and I went back to Santa Rosa and I was like, all right, I'm not letting him ever do this to me again. And I swore that that was that. And I hated him and I couldn't forgive him. And so I made the decision that I was going to move forward with the things that I had been doing, which was you know, building my life with the doctor and to give it a chance. And that's what I did. I go back home. I, you know, decided that I was not going to pursue any of this and that I wasn't going to tell anybody. Um, And I, you know, I went on with my life. I, you know, continued to live with the doctor. Um, He asked me to marry him seven years later and... We finally had the wedding in um, the fall of 2000. So we got married in 2000, and all during this period from 1992 through our wedding, you know, we're living our life, we're traveling. Um, I started my career at Merrill Lynch. It It was challenging. I didn't have time to think about anything else. I was really focused and driven at that point and happy. I was really happy, and so, Fast forward to 2005. At that point, I was six years into my career and I was in a partnership. You know, all this stuff is going on. I'm having knee surgery in December and I'm on a plane flying to France to meet my husband in Paris. He was already overseas. And I remember thinking, would I have any regrets if anything happened to me during the surgery and I didn't wake up? And I'm, you know, 30,000 feet in the air. And I'm thinking, and I'm starting to meditate on, am I going to have regrets? And this regret hits me like a ton of bricks. I don't know where Dan is. What happened to Dan? And I suddenly start having this vision. The way that the images come through, it's not like a thought. You know, like when you're thinking about something, it's literally like a movie. And so I, I feel like there's like this, like I pull back, you know, like it's, kind of out of body in a sense where I feel I'm definitely in my presence, but I feel just this pulse of energy and sort of this floaty feeling. I My eyes were open and I start seeing this movie of sirens. I see sirens, 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 sirens. Then I start feeling like my heart rate go up and like police coming. And um, next thing I see is police and then I see jail, like red jumpsuits, jail, and like really, you know, really loud and chaotic. And, um, and I'm seeing jail. And then next thing I see is, and, and like this is all related to Dan, you know, cause I'm thinking about what happened to Dan and this is what I'm getting. And then next thing I see is like knowing that he's dead, but not knowing anything why, like Dan's dead like i just had this knowing like dan is dan's going to be dead or he's dead like i just had this hor- horrifying feeling that he was going to die and it freaked me out i was hysterical I was so prepared when I got on the ground to start looking for Dan to make sure that he was okay. I mean, it was insane. I was ready to start making phone calls out of the blue, you know, and, and find him. And of course, I landed, I got off the plane, my husband meets me, and everything, like the whole feeling dissipates, the the energy, the tingling, all of it just kind of disappears from my mind. And I remember telling myself, are you out of your mind? Are you, no. You're not going to go looking for Dan while you're in Paris. Like, what are you thinking? And I, you know, I talked myself out of it. I was like, that's stupid. And so that was it. And I didn't think about it again. That was November. So fast forward to February. Now, at this point, I am professionally going through some really insane stuff. My career blows up. Um, I had been at that point working at Merrill Lynch For about four or five years, and um, had been in a partnership. And my partnership ended. And in that process, the manager of the office that I worked in decided that my partner should receive my share of the partnership. And that did not sit too well with me because he gave him all of my share of the partnership. And so I came to work one day, and six years of my business was taken away from me. I was locked out of my computers at work. I had no more income, and I was told that I had to start over. When you work for a large financial institution, such as I did, the accounts belong to the bank, not the advisor. And so a manager can reassign anything. Um, of course, I didn't know that. <laughs> so, um, and you know, I was I was very shy and you know pretty insecure at that point. I was just sort of, you know, kind of building confidence. And you know, here I am dealing with Wall Street, you know, investments and and meeting with clients. And so I was, you know, I was really starting to kind of build some confidence and and feel good about myself. And when this happened, they started making my life hell and. I kind of started fighting back. And in that process, I connected with someone who um, had dealt with this firm in the past. And she said, you know, there's a group of lawyers um, in New York and San Francisco, and they're looking for a woman on Wall Street that can deal with gender discrimination. And they wanted to meet me. And I, at that point, had a lot of evidence to support my claims of gender discrimination. I had documents that could show what was happening um, to me. And so what ended up happening was they wanted me to become a national lead plaintiff in a national class action lawsuit. And this was going to involve, you know, international press and all kinds of things. And at the time, I thought well, who the hell is going to care about me? I am some nobody from Main Street, Santa Rosa, you know, like, who's going to give a darn about me on Wall Street? So I didn't really, you know, I didn't really think that much about it. And I said, sure, I'll do it. So this is all going on for me. You know, I'm fighting for my life, for my career, not thinking about Dan or, you know, any of this. And out of the blue, one day, and I had just turned 36, and it was a few days later and I was in my garden and it was Super Bowl Sunday and um, it was a beautiful day and I was really happy and I was in my garden and I had this new six-month-old dog and I don't know, all of a sudden I just was like overwhelmed with this, again, these visions. I started thinking about Dan. Where was he? Is he okay? Is everything okay? Is everything okay? And it was just it was so weird because... Why am I thinking about this, you know? I'm like literally in my garden and I remember it just it wouldn't stop. It was all day long. Is he okay? Is he okay? Where is he? Where is he? And then I was like, "Well, maybe I'm thinking about him cuz it's Super Bowl Sunday." You know, and I knew, I mean, he loved football. Everything was football. I don't know. He's on the back of my mind, but I I didn't act on it. Um and then We had dinner plans at my mom and dad's, so my husband, for some reason, went ahead of me in a different car. They are making a meal that I didn't like, and he was helping them with crab, cracking the crab. So I went later, and I had a whole different meal, and I showed up for dinner, and the four of us are sitting around the dinner table in my mom's living room, and I can see, you know— she has a photo of, you know, of a drawing and there's a clock and my husband's across from me and, and my dad and my mom's next to me. And just out of the blue, you know, this this irritation starts to set in. At first, I kind of ignored it because it just seemed so odd, but it was so strong and so persistent and it was so clear. It was, there were like, I could hear this Why is everybody talking? I wish they would just stop talking. We need to make them stop talking. Please stop, you know, why is everybody talking? Why is there so much talking? And I remember like, you know, I was like there, but I wasn't, I was feeling kind of detached, you know, sort of. I know that I was sitting there, but I felt very light, like very kind of lightheaded. And I don't want to say woozy, but tingly and you know everything was going on normally around me i remember you know my husband talking to my dad and then i remember my mom like she was like are you okay is something wrong you know so she sent something and i just remember saying to her i don't know i feel really weird i go something something's not right And she goes sure something's not right with you are you okay and all this while i'm you know i'm kind of like coming in and out like my mom's kind of snapping me back but i'm feeling this like really out of, I don't know, out of body experience is the only way, but I was tethered, you know, I was at the table. And everything was sort of like muffled, you know, the sounds. All of a sudden, it kind of picks up again and it's really irritated by all the voices, really, really irritated. And just kept saying, it needs to be quiet, it needs to be quiet. And then, you know, I'm like, okay, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? And then all of a sudden, again, this I I get this like sensation and I and I felt like I sort of like left my body again and I get this tingling feeling and all of a sudden I am like in San Francisco and I'm standing on the Golden Gate Bridge and I am looking not at the city side but I'm looking at the ocean side out at the Pacific and I am near the towers closest to the city. So there's towers on either end of the bridge. And I'm near the towers right by when you cross into San Francisco. And I'm standing on the bridge and I can see the Pacific Ocean in front of me. There's the towers right here and the other ones are off to the side. And I see Sea Cliff, which is a a very ritzy, Um, community right by the bridge, underneath the bridge along the left hand side I hear, you know, I hear this again why is everybody talking? Why is everybody talking? Total irritation and I just feel like you know, I feel like I need to get away and then I hear look at the clock Look at the clock, like this panic. Look at the clock, look at the clock, look at the clock. And it got louder and louder and louder. And I felt, I feel really agitated and irritated. And I just was like, I remember looking at the clock. Note the time, note the time, note the time. Okay, 5.45, note the time, 5.45. I'm like, why am I thinking about this? So I'm like, what is wrong with me? What is wrong? And I, you know, my mom is still like, are you you sure you're okay? You're really being weird. And I was like, you know, I don't know. All of a sudden, I blurt out to my husband, I need to go to San Francisco. We need to go to San Francisco. Like, I'm panicked, panicked. And he's like, everybody at the dinner table stops. And they look at me, and he's like, what? And I said, I need to go to San Francisco. And he's like, right now? And I'm like, yeah, right now. And he's like, we're in the middle of dinner what are you talking about? I'm like, I don't know. I need to go to San Francisco. I really need to go to San Francisco. And he's like, it's Sunday. We're ha- like, we're, we're not going to go to San maybe. And I'm like, I don't know. Maybe next weekend. I'm like, we really need, I need you to take me to San Francisco. We need to go to San Francisco. And he's like, you know, I'm like, I'm trying to rationalize this. And I'm just his- like, literally hysterical. Everybody on my, you know, the whole dinner table is just like, what are you talking about? And he's like, oh, okay. And, it, and that was it. And then a little few more minutes go by. And then again, look at the
0: clock, look at the clock, look at the clock, look at the clock, look at the clock,
1: look at the clock. I looked at the clock, 610. Okay. Note the time, note the time, note the time. Okay, 610. And then I'm just like, I just was again agitated and irritated. And I started feeling really moody and like really kind of like upset. Like I was so upset and I couldn't, I just, I couldn't figure it out. I was like, what is fucking wrong with me? And I was really having this like turmoil internally of feeling really out of it. And my mom looks at me and she's like, honey, do you need to go home? And I was like, I think so. And she goes, why don't you just go ahead and leave and go home right now? Don't don't worry about the dishes. Now, let me tell you, I've never in my life left my mother's table without clearing the table and putting the dishes in the dishwasher like she's not gonna do that I'm gonna do that and she was like you need to go go home and I did I did not finish my dinner it probably was six fifteen. I got up and I left and I went home uh, my husband came home at like nine or ten maybe I could not tell you what I did Other than I remember I went home and I sat on my living room floor and I had my puppy with me and I had the fireplace on and I was like literally in front of the fire, like almost in the fire, just laying there and I was watching TV. And I remember my husband showed up like nine something. He took off his shoes. He went upstairs, got into bed and passed out cold, like out. And I stayed up for a while because I was feeling really out of sorts. Like I was really emotional. I was feeling really sad. I was feeling really unsettled. And I'm watching TV and my dog is like next to me. And I don't know this part, if it's real or not. And I question if it was real because I know that in the Bay Area, announcements on the news were never broadcast um, like this. And I thought that I saw the newscaster like in a commercial, right, you know, during the commercial breaks, Um, 38-year-old man jumps from the Golden Gate Bridge more at 10, you know, at the 10 o'clock news hour. And I heard that and it stunned me. Like, it left me so shaken and freaked out, and I was beside myself. And I just started to, like, shake when I heard that, and I just started sobbing, 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 sobbing. And the first thing I could think of is, why would a 38-year-old man jump off the Golden Gate Bridge? What was so wrong? Why would he do that? Does he have a wife? Does he have like I I spun out of emotional control? And I remember thinking, what's wrong with me? And I just was so consumed with a feeling of regret, of grief, of sadness, of desperation. I, I just can't even explain how I felt. I've never felt that way. And like physically shaking. I remember my dog all of a sudden popped up, sit upright seated, jammed into my chest, like protecting me, shaking. And all of a sudden he's like, and as he did that, like the whole room changed. I felt everything tingle and like this insane kind of pulsing sort of energy, and it felt like something walked through my front door, like a presence. It was so strong, so clear, and my dog was staring at that front door like, you know, a murderer had come through.
0: I I hate to cut this off, but that brings us to the end of part one. We'll be back very soon with the rest of the story in part two. I mentioned in the intro that Renee sent us all sorts of love letters, photos, and documents related to the story. We read all of them. They're very, very interesting. And if you're interested in hearing more, we're going to be doing some kind of bonus episodes with Renee on Patreon. This week, I think we're going to be going through some of her love letters there are a lot of them. You can hear that at patreon.com otherworld. I also want to mention, because this theme is part of the episodes, if anyone is ever struggling with suicidal thoughts, the new suicide and crisis lifeline number is 988. You can call or text that number 24 hours a day. That's in the United States and Canada, 988. We'll be back with the rest of this story in part two. This has been episode 70, Eagle Eye Part 1, and you've been listening to Otherworld. Otherworld is executive produced and hosted by myself, Jack Wagner. Our theme song is by Man. The soundtrack of this episode is by Juice Jackal. The song you're hearing right now is Obvious by The Drums. This was edited by Theo Krantz and engineered by Theo Schaefer. Our artwork is by cul de studios. Production help by Nikki Kate Delgado and Hayley Pearson. Please show us your support by subscribing, leaving a five-star review, and telling your friends about Otherworld. If you want to hear bonus episodes, become a patron at patreon.com slash otherworld. Our social media is at otherworldpod. Thank you to the team at Odyssey J.D. Crowley, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Leah Reese-Dennis, Rob Morandi, Eric Donnelly, Matt Casey, Moira Curran, Josephina Francis, and Hilary Schuff Follow and listen to Otherworld Now for free on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts And finally, if you or somebody you know has experienced something paranormal, supernatural, or unexplained You can send us your story at storiesotherworldpod.com. I wouldn't say it's a family show, but we try to... There's a wholesome operation I run here, every day. I don't know why you're sending me this smut. No,
1: right? You're like, wow. <laughs> go, girl, go.
0: The fact... I mean, he has beautiful handwriting. I'll say, I will say that.
2: Sure. Very cool. Yeah.
0: Beautiful handwriting for a man and a high schooler. And a football player. Right. And a football player of all things, but... <laughs>
1: You know, I was talking to somebody recently and they're like, I don't even know how to write curses.
0: <laughs> True. I was also not getting letters written to me like this in high school, but that speaks more to <laughs> my popularity <laughs> <or> <laughs> than anything. Um, oh, that's just so fun. I'm just so, it just, it's really, it's just so cute. We're scanning them all now and I'll send you, um, send you them eventually. We'll talk to you soon. Okay.
1: Sounds good. Thanks so much for checking in. That was awesome. All
0: right. See you later. (laughs)